running a business is very complex and it feels really kind of overwhelming for lots of people. But in a way, you can use all the same skills that you use in practice and in your normal relationships in relating to your business. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. It's not a question if you are selling. You are. The question is, to whom or not, and if you know what you're doing. Many of us have a problem with selling our services. We conflate money with something dirty or evil. We fail to recognize the value of what we bring or fall onto the other side of overvaluing our clinical offerings. Humans are always selling. The way we dress, the company we keep, the opinions we hold is true, what we say in public and what we don't. If you style your hair, wear a certain brand of clothes, brush on some makeup or carefully trim your whiskers, you're selling. We all sell because nature is based on relationships of exchange. Everything in nature announces what it has on offer, and everything in nature lives within a web of exchange. Exchange is the urenchi of nature. It's what keeps things moving and allows for the transformations of yin and yang. Now, when you think of sales, what do you think about? What's the first thing that comes to mind? Take a moment here. Glimpse the images in your mind right now or Pay attention to the feelings circulating through your chest. I'm guessing that you just pulled up some negative encounter with someone who didn't have your best interest in mind. Maybe you even bought something just to make that person go away. I know that I have and felt pretty bad about myself as a result. It's easier to blame someone else than to recognize how I've been complicit in my own troubles due to a lack of courage or fortitude. But there's another side of this that you might not have caught into, that sales, when it's done well, and in service of being helpful, you won't even notice it. You won't notice it because it feels like someone is caring for you and being helpful. They seem more like a guide or an advisor than someone who's trying to talk you into something for their own benefit. Sales from this perspective is about helping someone to solve a problem. It's about being of service in a way that brings mutual benefit. It's about caring enough to know enough about what you have on offer and that you can clearly state who it's for and who it isn't. Really, sales is like a good clinical encounter. You're there to find out what a person needs and then do your best to provide that for them. Or Point them in a direction where they might find something that's more beneficial. And as for those encounters with the people you know are working the levers of manipulation, some gallbladder courage and thunder usually helps to rebalance that equation. If you're uncomfortable selling your services, then perhaps you don't clearly understand what it is that you have on offer. Acupuncture is not a solution. Acupuncture is a method. And the knack here is to understand what's the problem that you're helping someone else to solve. And that problem, it may or may not have anything to do with the first thing that they write on your health history form in that little box at the top that says main complaint. Separating clinical work from the business of running that clinic That's like trying to separate body from mind. You can do so, but it's at your peril. I like to think about business as a kind of cultivation. It's not something that we have to do. It's something that we get to do. In this second conversation with Eric Gray, we get into some of the nuts and bolts of running a practice. We discuss some of the pitfalls to watch out for some basics that require due diligence, and how the whole process can help season us into a resilient professional. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. 
Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of the solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash Geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so. Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code geological at the time of sign up for a 1-month grace period on your new Jane account. I recently read a book called Business Made Simple, and the first chapter is about the character traits that we all need to develop to be capable of taking on the demands of being a reliable and value-driven person. I think the author Donald Miller was right. Who we are is at the core of being present, competent, and able to learn how to grow into a capable professional. I really think our businesses can help us grow into more well-rounded acupuncturists. Eric has some thoughts about this as well. Let's get into it. Eric Gray, welcome back to Geological. I'm very happy to be here with you. I'm psyched to talk to you. We had a good time last time. As is so often the case, I have an idea of what I want to talk about. In this case, it was business. But last time, you know, it's one of those free-range organic conversations. We went all over the place because that's what you do when you're a Chinese medicine practitioner and you're talking to one of your buddies. You're just talking about stuff. But today, 
I want to get nuts and bolts into practice, like making practices work. I know this is something that you spent a lot of time and thought on, and there's people that you're working with and helping with this. Uh, there's experiences that you have had yourself in terms of building practices and, and building a business, like way out on the very, very edge of the continent, for God's sake. Yep. Yeah, and so you got all kinds of experience. So uh, we're going to dive into it here. And, and what I want to start with today is like, in your opinion, in your mind, with the experience you've had, what are the three most important aspects of practice building that people need to know? Wow, way to spring it on me there. I love it. It's funny because I just wrote down three things right before we started talking, uh, not necessarily fully prepared for this. But, you know, I think if I had to say, I often think about what's the one thing, right? So that's a good place to start. And this kind of relates to the conversation we were having just prior to recording. Maybe the most important thing, there's this, this metaphor of having your ladder up against the wrong building. Oh my God, do I have experience? Yeah, right? So you make a practice, you invest time and energy into it. And it turns out that either where it is, what the type of practice is, some major aspect, some foundational aspect is wrong for you. And you know that's kind of part of the natural process of learning about business, but it's terrible when somebody, you know, gets a $40,000, $60,000 business loan, creates this practice that they're really excited about, and then it, they discover it's fundamentally not what they want. So yes. for me, you know, one of the things I talk to people the most about is just making sure you plan it out and that you really think through the ideas that you have and that you don't just jump into something because a colleague is doing that or because it was your first idea. Right. Or maybe because you heard, oh, you can make money doing this. Exactly. I mean, sometimes you can make money, but it's not a practice you want to work in. Yeah, precisely. Or the most common one I see or hear about from my students and, and colleagues is that they go somewhere because they hear it's a good market, right? They hear that, oh, there's acupuncture patients here and there's a real need and they go there, but the place is not a place that they is their place, right? It's not right for them. So, you know, location, even something as simple as location, I do find that People are surprisingly flippant about this decision. So for me, I really, you know, in all of my teaching, I really try to counsel people to take the time to actually plan it out and think it through, even if you're kind of real eager to get into practice, which most of us are when we graduate, right? Especially those of us who have big student loans. You want to get on the road to having some cash in your pocket, and I get it. But if it turns out that everything is fundamentally not what you truly wanted, then and that's problematic. I do get pushback. I, I will say just right away, I do get pushback on this sometimes because people say that was a step along my path, right? Like I messed up and turned out that wasn't what I wanted to do, but that was a necessary part of my development. And, and, and I get that. I mean, I think that's true. We all have our own path and sometimes you have to try something out that's not quite right in order to find the thing that is the most right. I just want to make sure that those mistakes or uh, choices or you know learning experiences are as painless as possible and not too expensive. And not too expensive. I totally get it. There are plenty of paths that I have gone down and I got some experience. But as I heard famous investor, what's that guy's name? Marks. But he has this great quote. He said, experience is what you get when you don't get what you wanted. Right. Exactly. Right. Experience is what you get when you don't get what you wanted. And of course, there are paths that we take and it doesn't take us to where we want to go. We learn something. We probably learn something that's valuable. The question that I have, and I'm speaking totally directly from experience, is how much tuition did I have to pay to get that lesson? Exactly. And, you know, sometimes those of us, like me, uh, that have to learn the same lesson repeatedly, I would like to minimize that in the future. <laughs> I'd like to learn my lesson once and, and move on. But yeah, I mean, it's, it is about the tuition for sure. And, you know, not just for yourself, but for others in some cases, right? Yes. One of the problems people get into is making too quick partnership decisions in terms of their practice, right? A group of friends goes in together on a practice because they're friends in school. Once they get out of school and once the financial pressure starts, they find they're not such good friends anymore. So not, and that can usually be forestalled by doing some research on the front end and having some conversations on the front end about What's our vision for this? How are we going to deal with conflict? How are we going to divide things up if things go wrong? Kind of those types of questions. So those are the types of things. Definitely kind of having a vision and having a plan, I think, is undertaught or undersold. Well, do you know who Kevin Kelly is? Are you familiar with him? He's a writer. 
No. Kevin Kelly was one of the original founding editors of Wired Magazine. Okay. So he's a brilliant polymath dude. And he's got a great website on the internet and he's got these little quotes and things. I was reading one the other day. He says, with the exception of love, you should always have an exit strategy for anything that you go into. Right. Because it's easy to get in, but it's hard to get out. And it's helpful to think about, okay, if we need to take this apart, how would we do it? That's not to jinx it. It's not to say we don't trust each other. No. But it is to say it's easy to get in, but how do you untie it if you need to untie it? I mean, we all know this from the relationships that we've been in, that you get in and it's nice for a while, and then you find that actually maybe this isn't so nice, and you know, taking it apart is never easy. So have you got any advice for us on how to, at the beginning, consider how you might take it apart if you need to take it apart? Honestly, just even what we've said so far is gets people a lot of distance that they often would not have traveled. So just asking yourself that question often gets you quite distance ahead of the game. But the three things I always ask people to look at is how are we going to deal with conflict? So not so much about disillusion itself, but about trying to avoid it, right? So that fundamental question, so who makes the decisions and how do we deal with that decision-making process and conflicts when they arise, right? That piece. So I ask people to write it down, to develop a contract. Now, of course, this is not legally binding necessarily, but an agreement between friends or between colleagues or whatever it is. One of the main things is just how do we deal with it? How are we going to deal with the conflict? So if let's say, hey, I mean, let's just make it extra real, right? Like COVID-19 sweeps through the world. You are in practice for nine months with two of your colleagues. One of them doesn't want to, you're in a state that doesn't mandate masking. One of your colleagues doesn't want to have masks in the clinic. Two of them do. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with that when everybody's put $25,000 in to the bucket and they all have their names on the website? You just have to have that conversation. You have to say like, if worse comes to worse, if we have a fundamental conflict, what will we do? So that's one thing. Another thing, that kind of the second big thing, is to talk about what happens with the stuff. So one thing is more about conflict resolution and kind of how do we deal with the relationship. The, the second thing is more how do we deal with the stuff. That seems like a minor point, but let's say you and I are going to go into practice together and you have a great artwork collection. You bring it in, we're in practice together for 10 years. First of all, I don't have a very good memory, so I'm probably going to forget what was mine. <laughs> But I've seen those conflicts actually really hurt relationships between colleagues when that didn't need to happen. And there just needed to be a conversation about what do we do? So if we both go in on some new furniture, what do we do with it? Again, sounds like a small point, but it's really profound. And then the third thing is to talk about what you're going to do with patients, right? So if we are in practice together and then we decide to dissolve the practice, what happens with the patients? Do you keep your patients? I keep mine. What happens if we share patients? What happens if one person has been doing all the marketing efforts and all the work on the front end? So just talking about what do we do? How do we wrap that up? And most of all, how do we communicate it to our patients, right? So it's kind of like, in a way, it does have some prenuptial agreement type overtones, right? What do we do with the kids? What, you know, how, how do we deal with this stuff? And how do we try to avoid this? What's our mediation process? How do we deal with it on the front end? So those are the things I mostly end up talking to folks about. I hadn't thought about it as like a prenuptial agreement, but when you say it, I'm thinking, all right, so there's a framework right there that's been used and it's usable. Yeah. And it's, I mean, some people don't like that reference, but. Well, I mean, you're tying your lives together, right? When you get into a business partnership, it, you might as well be married. In some ways, yeah. It can become very deep and intertwined. And in some ways it's at its best when, when it does get to that level, right? Because this is not a sub sandwich shop or a, we're in the business of impacting people's lives in a very deep and intimate way. And so when you're with a group of people and you're trying to create the container for that kind of transformation, yeah, it can get very deep. People's stuff can come up and just like in a, another type of partnership. So I think approaching it with that kind of, I don't want to use the word seriousness because it's actually quite fun in, in many cases, but the same gravity and the same care. That's what I mean to say. Mm. You know, taking some care with it. It's not just something that you pop into and pop out of because it's not just about you. It's also about your patients. And every everything that happens to your business, it's affecting your patients. I like that term gravity, that it has a weight in a solidity 
And gravity also connects things together. Indeed. I think there's another thing that folks should talk about in the beginning, and that's money. Sure. How they feel about it, their attitudes toward it. Some people are like, oh, yeah, I got it. I spend it. No problem. And other people are, I want to put some away. And, you know, anyone who's been married knows something about partners. Exactly. uh, Thoughts about money, especially if they're different from your own. This would be something that would be very helpful to go over in the beginning. Uh, It's such a area that's fraught with so much unconscious material. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, uh, frankly, just to do that work yourself as an individual, right? Like to ask yourself, how do I feel fundamentally about, I mean, I think it's surprising, um, but many of us come to this practice, not really being entirely aware of the fact that we might have to run our own business, right? So I think people come to it and it may be in the back of their mind, but they kind of assume it's just going to work its way out. And, you know, I think that there's sometimes not conscious process to think about what will it be like when I am out there selling my services for money. Even that fundamental thing, taking money for healing work. I tell you, when I taught at NUNM in the first class, we would do a whole, sometimes just one class, but sometimes it would be two weeks where we just talked about money. And we just talked about like, how do you feel about it? And we would, it's West Coast. So we would bring up things like, how do we feel about capitalism? You know, how do we feel about corporate capitalism? How do we feel about the exchange of money for healing services? How do we feel about being involved with the insurance industry? How do we feel, where are our feelings of worthiness, right? Like I had to work through a lot of stuff because I came up in kind of poorer circumstances and I saw a lot of that around me and still see a lot of that around me in my family and, and, you know, friends that I had when I was younger. I feel some guilt about having money. So I had to work through that stuff. So I think doing that work yourself is critically important. And then, yeah, if you're going to go into a partnership with somebody, if one person is unconsciously really uncomfortable with money and you're not, don't tell me that's not going to be a problem. <laughs> that's going to well, become a huge, be a huge problem. It would be a huge problem, of course, because if one person is thinking money's bad, money's evil, you really shouldn't have too much. And capitalism, by the way, no, I think that's not a good idea. And the other person is thinking money's really helpful. It lets me live in a nice house. It lets me put my kids through school. I can drive a car that's reliable. And most importantly, I can do the work that I love to do that helps people. Money is the life, it's the chi of a practice. Yeah, you got to have it. <laughs> That's for sure. I'm sure. And there's even, I would say, I, I actually just had a kind of chat with two students and there's even further distance between them because one person is, is deeply uncomfortable. I wouldn't even say uncomfortable. I would say that they have sort of made a decision in their life that they don't want to be involved with money and they kind of going off grid and kind of going in that kind of direction. And the other person is kind of like bright lights, big city. Like I want to have a flashy marketing campaign and, and is really excited about making some cash. Right. So not even just the like more moderate perspective you just expressed, but like bling, like they're ready for it. These are two people who I know to be the best of friends, like super close, super, super tight. And this is wrecking in them. You know, it's a real challenge. So yeah, I mean, I think it, I'm glad you brought it up because it is, it's one of those things that you would think, is this a conversation we need to have? Yes, you do. Hello everyone, Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of yang, the primal reservoir of yang which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page 
at Anne Cecil Sturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. Are these people trying to be in business together with each other? Yeah, they're in business together and, and have run into a real issue because of it. And it's just one of those things where, you, I mean, again, it's like a, another kind of relationship where you're like, how did you not see this? Love is blind. Love. <laughs> well, you know, because I love them so much, I know they're going to change. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, all those things are good. And I think fundamentally... Just writing something down. Yes. You know, having a conversation to me is not enough. You want to write something down and have everybody sign it so that at the very least, when you do come to a conflict point, it's still uncomfortable. It doesn't make the conflict less conflicty, but it does mean that you can say, look, like this is the conversation we had. This is what you said. This is what I said. And so let's move forward from there, as opposed to it being like, well, I don't know if that's what I said. So it's, and again, it's real hard, right? When you're close friends to say like, look, I, I really feel like we need to write this down because it does seem like you don't trust them. That's where it can go, but it doesn't need to by any means, not in business, especially. So literally get on the same page. Yes. And I don't think it's about not trusting the other person. I mean, I know for myself, having watched myself through years and years and watched how mercurial my mind is and how changeable I am and how I've got one idea at one moment. I could have a completely opposite idea a week later and they both make sense and I don't see the contradiction. For me, this kind of thing is a great idea, not because I don't trust the other person, but because I know my own predilections and I kind of don't trust myself because I know that I'm changeable and I'm mercurial and I'm mutable. And so I could make an agreement at one point in time and get six months down the road and go, yeah, no, I don't think so. It's helpful to have something I can go back to and, and at least be able to say, yes, at that time I was there. Now I'm here. Okay, what do we do with that delta? Yeah, totally. That's exactly what I was trying to say is like, it's not even necessarily about that the conflict doesn't come up or that your mind doesn't change, but at least you have something to say. This was where my mind was, and this is the raw material from which we can construct the next position. And it helps everybody. And it even helps you, like when you're having your mind change or you're having some conflict with that person, you can look back at the document and say, what was the original idea here? What, you know, what were we thinking? And it's really helpful. And, and so I will say that I, I've seen a lot of what happens when people don't do this. But I've also seen, uh, since I've been teaching this stuff for a while, I have seen the positive results when people do this. And, you know, I've had a couple students reach out to me and say, hey, we did this and we did run into a conflict and this is how it worked out. And, you know, we're still friends. So I just want to say it's not like I've only seen the bad part of it. I really do think it, it helps. And, you know, me and my wife are in business together and we still have stuff written down in the same way. Hey, maybe I should do that with my wife. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's, sometimes it gets into trouble there. But yeah, so those things are pretty important. And, you know, I will say also that I've noticed some benefit for folks when they, I'm not sure exactly how to say this, but again, like, I guess I'm speaking here to people who are in school together right now and they're thinking about going into business together. School is a very unusual place. When you're in school, you get to know people on, on one level and it's just important that I think when people are going to go into business together, they really get to know each other to some extent, like have the conversations. I think that's why business planning is so helpful because if you have a systematic business planning process that takes a few weeks with that person, you're going to have the opportunity for kind of you to get to know their personality in a different way and for you to start to work out different issues. So, you know, really getting to know each other's history, like you said, talking about money, talking about how do we feel about going to practice and just being really honest. Some people think it's a little overboard, but again, these businesses we build are more than just a place where a product is exchanged for money. And so I think it's worth really taking that care with it and care with that other person, you know, to make sure that it's going to be the right fit. It's worthwhile. And I've certainly seen the benefit of getting to know somebody before I go into practice. And then I've also seen the detriment when, when I don't. So. so it sounds like your thoughts on doing a business planning process. It's not just the marketing plan and the business plan, the projections, the cash flow and all that. It's who we are and how we are with each other. That needs to be included in that process. Yeah. The thing I'm writing right now, I mean, I've been writing this course now. For, I was like, it's, this is going to take me about three weeks to complete. 
and now it's like month three. But it's really just about engaging in a really robust business planning process for these practices and taking into account, you know, it's a holistic process. You're taking into account all parts of yourself and then all parts of the business, like looking at each piece with awareness and with openness and saying, okay, what are we going to do here? And sometimes that's going to go into something like a marketing plan. But yeah, like, yeah, I have people write out kind of a, a professional development plan for themselves. You know, how do you see yourself growing as a practitioner? Do you see yourself adding things you know, beyond practice at some point in the future. Starting to think through all these different issues that come up, I just think that awareness and that kind of comprehensive process for putting your awareness in each aspect of practice, I just find that you build a such a stable base of support and people just, whether or not businesses are more successful with this process, I don't know that I have the data for that, but what I can say is that people's anxiety is dramatically reduced and their satisfaction is increased because they have more of a handle on the complexity of these businesses that we run. That sounds like good advice. When, when you say other things beyond practice, what are you referring to? Well, there I was just referring to, so a lot of people, when they get into practice the first few years, it's a lot to adapt to, right? Having your own patients, developing your skill set without a supervisor, that usually dominates. But I would say most of my colleagues, once they get to a point where the practice is flowing, that they're, the actual medical piece is becoming easier. I don't mean easy, but you start to get into a certain flow of things. They often start finding other areas to develop professionally. So things like teaching or whether that's teaching in an academic context or a community context, teaching a Qigong class or something like that. Some people go into you know developing products and services for other businesses like ours, right? Going into EHR or making different types of products for the treatment room or developing software, stuff like that. So just different avenues or even other professions. Like my wife, who's been a massage therapist for a long time, is now really like getting excited about learning more about business, right? And especially holistic business and running practices and stuff like that. So I just think that it's pretty natural. A lot of us, I think a lot of practitioners in, in, in this field, we naturally have lots of interests. Our minds are active and curious. And I just see a lot of people wanting to go beyond clinical practice, but not everybody. Lots of folks do just keep on going with clinical practice and that's fine too. I think a lot of people do branch off. It does depend on a person's personality to some degree. And I think you're right about once the practice has wheels on it, then you have an opportunity and you've got some uh, bandwidth to be able to see how else can I help? What else can I do? Can I be even more helpful in some ways? You know, like you're saying, teaching a class in a community, you're not helping one person at a time. You might be helping 20 people at a time. You're much more efficient that way. Yeah. And it's also the case that as long as you're feeling confident in the treatment room, even if your practice is maybe like the financial piece is not quite there, I know. I know a lot of folks, especially in Portland, who for whom one of those extra areas actually was the key to their building their practice, right? So somebody who starts teaching Qigong classes in the community, they start connecting with folks that way. And since it's a low investment for the person to come and see you that way, and they get a sense of your energy and who you are as a person and your knowledge, and then they naturally want to come to your practice. So you don't have to you don't have to wait until you're on easy street before you can branch out. But I do think, especially for me anyway, adapting to being a doctor was, it was a doozy. It took me a couple of years to get my legs under me. Yeah, I think it does. It definitely takes some time. I've got a question about that. Okay. Because I think what we're talking about is a type of path of development. And when I think about development, especially if you look at like models of human development, Ericksonian or Piagetian or Jungian, you know, whatever. There's all kinds of psychological models of development. And within each of those models, a younger person, they've got to reach certain developmental, I'm going to say competencies, before they can develop to the next level. Sure. Right? You look at any human being, if you're like six months old, there are things that are appropriate for you to develop. That's going to be very different than what like a nine-year-old needs to develop. And I think it's probably true with businesses as well. There's things that we need to do at a certain phase in the beginning. That's very, very important. But if you're still doing that same thing five years down the road, 
it might be holding you back. Yeah, it's so funny because I was just putting the finishing touches on this module for this course. And one of the things I was referencing is business life cycle. And there's this guy, Charlie Gilkey. Uh, he has a blog um, called uh, Productive Flourishing. I think it's at ProductiveFlourishing.com. And he's a Portlander and I know him through another friend and he was also a business coach of ours. Anyway, he wrote a book, which I'm not going to remember the exact name. It's like four stages of business life cycle or something like that. In it, he talks about just that, which is that there are stages of development. Of course, as a practitioner, he doesn't talk about that because he's just talking about business, but that there are stages of your business's development and certain things are really important at one phase, such as lots and lots of marketing that brings in brand new patients, right? So there's certain types of marketing that better bring in brand new patients as opposed to bringing back your existing patients. And so that marketing can be very important early in business and later can actually become inappropriate because you're feeding too many patients into the practice and don't have the operational capacity to handle it, right? So really understanding your business where it is and where you are with relationship to it will really help you not to waste time and energy. So yeah, I agree. And as you develop in certain stages, maybe you do add the capacity to be able to do something like teach classes, but you shouldn't feel the pressure to do that when you first start. I find there's so much pressure on brand new practitioners and they, they think they have to do the thing. They have to you know, do all the different social media stuff and they have to do this and they have to do the classes and the ear seeds and all the things and, you know, and everything else on top of it. And at the same time, they're adapting to being in practice and it's just too much. Like you have to find what is needed at your stage of development, I mean, it's just like treating patients, right? You can't throw everything at your patient the first day. There's appropriate stages. So yeah, I agree. I know you were talking about capacity. I have found in starting businesses, and I've started three different clinics at this point. I hope I never have to do that again, but, but I could if I needed to. And what I found in the beginning, like you were saying with marketing, in the beginning, I find I say yes to almost everything. Right. Because you never know what's going to pan out and be helpful. True. But as time goes on and the thing starts to gain momentum, I find more and more often I'm saying no to things. Yeah, you have to. And it really says something about where you are in the developmental arc. Because at a certain point, saying no is so important because it leaves you open for the very most important things that you're doing. And by then, you know what they are. But you can't know that stuff in the beginning. Yeah, there's always development. And if you try to project yourself out and figure it all out from the beginning and do all the things that you would be doing late in practice, early in practice, it's just not going to work. You're, you're not going to have the, like I was saying, you're just not going to have the capacity to deal with it. You know, it's interesting, right? Because running a business is very complex and it feels really kind of overwhelming for lots of people. But in a way, you can use all the same skills that you use in practice and in your normal relationships in relating to your business and in developing. Yes, it is an area where there's lots of words we don't yet know and lots of formulas we don't know how to utilize. But ultimately, just using these basic skills of like knowing where I am in development, knowing myself, you knowing my own reactions, having a, a sense of orientation around my business and proceeding in a organic way, in a holistic way, those just super basic principles can serve you just as well as business in business as they do in practice in uh, the treatment room. I'm just having this thought as we're having this conversation that having a business is not the same as having a job. These are very, very different things. And I'm a little bit lucky because, and it's so bizarre. I mean, this is just so bizarre to me. My grandparents' generation, nobody had a job. There was no one in my grandparents' generation that I can remember that had a job, not a single one. They all had their own businesses. And the reason they had their own businesses is because they were Jewish. And at that time, people didn't hire Jews. Right. You couldn't get a job because they couldn't get jobs. They had to create businesses. As a consequence, I grew up in a family where having a job is not the norm, but I've watched people my whole young life. Having a business, as my grandpa used to say. And so now I come out years later, and for me, having a business makes more sense than having a job. And it's just because that's what I was inculcated around. So their difficulty turns out to be my lucky break in that sense. And so having a job, you don't see that. I love the term that you use, 
a holistic view of what a business of, uh, we'll edit that out, a holistic view of what a business is because it's not just about doing a job. It's about understanding who you are. It's about understanding how you are with other people. It's understanding who your patients, your customers are and what they need. Are you willing to serve them in the way that they want to be served? Yeah, it's, it's an act of creation. Yes, it is. Being in business, and, it, and it's not an act of creation that just starts at the startup. You're kind of always in that act of creation. You're always reinventing you know, the way that you're saying things, the way you're approaching things. You're always having to adapt to something new. You know, It's this very active process, whereas having a job can also be active, right? depending on the company and depending on your position. But fundamentally, the direction and the material is being provided from outside of you. Right. So the big key, the place where people and I think you just kind of made a point I didn't even know I wanted to make, which is you had the mindset. Right. You were kind of born and raised with the mindset. And so was I, like for different reasons. I, I mean, it wasn't a foreign idea. It wasn't it wasn't yeah. unusual. In fact, it was normal. Having a job was right. was the aberration. Yeah. And for people um, who might have a different orientation, who maybe, you know, their parents had really stable, secure positions with pensions and all that kind of stuff, for them, it can be a tough adjustment at times. I would say terrifying. (laughs) Yeah. To the ups and downs, you know, it's like there can be a lot of resentment that comes in because that steadiness is not always there, especially at first and that predictability. And you do have the sense of like, everything relies on me because sorry, it does. (laughs) And that for me, that's like enlivening. Like that's, I couldn't imagine having a job. Like having the job at the university was as close as I will ever come to having an actual job. And that was borderline intolerable. So the truth of the matter is there is something kind of constitutional that makes it maybe just a little bit, I don't want to say easier, but it's just a more natural fit. But that said, you know, I see all kinds of people have great success. It just does take developing that mindset. It takes developing some skills. You said something here about uh, stability as compared to uncertainty or instability. And I think that's a really key thing here. When you're in business for yourself, you are very clearly with skin in the game looking at a world that is full of uncertainty. And as a meditator, I also know that sitting on a cushion, you know, I mean, that's often one of the things you look at. And recognizes the ephemeral, changing, uncertain nature of life. But I can tell you something. Sitting on a cushion and looking at the uncertainty of life, that is a walk in the park compared to, I just got a lease. It's for five years. I've got these expenses. Oh, shit. Now uncertainty has a whole different meaning to it. Yeah, it does. And yeah, the truth of the matter is that we can make a plan and we can prepare ourselves, but that those first six months, they can be exhilarating and they can also be very destabilizing, but especially because I think you make these projections. You're like, okay, I need to have this many patients, whatever. And if it doesn't happen quickly or you have those patients and then two months later, you don't have those patients, that can be very destabilizing. So again, that's, I guess that's really why I'm so passionate about doing what I'm doing right now is that I really want every single acupuncturist that I can possibly reach to feel that they have a comprehensive understanding of what it takes to really be successful in practice before they start or early on when they start. So that even though it doesn't change the terror, it doesn't change the mindset you have to adapt, it doesn't change the fundamental uncertainty of business and life, but it can at least give you a roadmap and a compass, right? So that you can at least find where you are and you don't feel that like floating in space feeling (laughs) that I've felt many times. Which of course is going to happen, especially when you've got some projections, you know what you need to make. It's actually going along fine. And then all of a sudden patient load drops off. When you're a new practitioner or in the beginning of a practice, and you're having that experience where, oh my goodness, load's dropping off. What advice would you have for people at that moment in time? What should they be doubling down on? And what should they be, and by the same token, what should they be avoiding? Sure. I'm going to give the same obnoxious answer that we always give to people who ask us questions like this about healthcare because it's for the same reason, which is it kind of depends. So when, it, when I teach business and when I coach in this, this series of courses I'm making, 
actually use the five elements and the 12 organ systems to characterize different parts of the business. And that the reason that is so great for acupuncturists is because we live with these theories. And so it helps make what otherwise seem to be kind of really diffuse and hard to understand concepts. They, it gives them a little bit more solidity and something we can grab onto. So I have five systems in the business. And so if somebody reaches a point where patient load drops off and I'm coaching them, then I will, we'll do a little five systems analysis. We'll say, what's going on in these systems? It's just like with a patient. You just say like, okay, what's going on? I mean, I don't say what's going on with five elements, but you know the point I'm trying to make. You kind of say, you say to yourself, what's going on here? What's going on here? You know, and how are these systems interrelating, especially? So for example, just quickly, the five systems that I, I utilize, you can chop these up however you wanted, but is number one, the executive, number two, facilities, number three, finance, number four, marketing, and number five, operations, right? So let's say you come to me and you say, I was doing great. I was, you know, seeing 20 patients a week or whatever it is. And all of a sudden I haven't had a new patient call in however long. Well, then we're going to sit there and we're going to look at each system and say, what's going on in each of these? Because there's diverse reasons that a practice might drop off. Maybe the fact is that you haven't been getting to your voicemails and people are losing trust in your business because you're not getting back to them quickly enough, right? That's an operations issue. So we got to fix that. So basically, you know, it's not easy. I was thinking about this because you asked me for a tip last time we talked. I'm not really a tip guy, uh, just like I'm not really a, a symptom relief guy. Because the truth is, every business has different reasons that it's shipping up. And it really has to do with how the business has been set up. So we have to do a systems analysis and just get a sense for where it is. Now, a lot of times it is marketing, but it's not always marketing. And I'll tell you, if I would give one tip, it's don't always put your money into marketing because it's not always marketing. That's the issue. It's not always that people don't know where you are or know who you are. Sometimes it's just that your space is in the wrong place or that you don't have signage and they keep walking right by you and there's another acupuncturist at the end of the block or whatever. So I, I hope I'm making my point without being too over-enthusiastic. But the point being that we look at all the systems, we look at the business and we say, where's the issue? And then we apply consistent effort to that area. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI. 2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. That makes a lot of sense. Like you, I'm an acupuncturist. That's the way my mind works. There's something going on. The first question is, well, what's going on with the entirety of what we're looking at here? So that makes sense. Yeah. And also the truth is, just like with medicine, sometimes you just don't know, right? And so there are things that you can try, right? So, you know, again, this is more time than we have, but depending on where the, what kind of problem we're having, there are things that we can try even if we can't diagnose it properly. If we just know something's happening, we're not exactly sure why, or the thing that we tried didn't work there are certain things that we can try to get the flywheel loose and, and get a sense of what's going on. So it's not like, you know, you have to do this in-depth diagnosis process in order to get anything moving. But I do think, especially if you're going to be spending money or making some type of commitment to something, that you should look at the whole first and just make sure that you're not misapplying your efforts. I really appreciate your comment about maybe the issue is the operations. Uh, like you're not answering your voicemail. You're not getting back to people soon enough. It's curious, and I think that there might be more than a few people 
that are guilty of this. Because, I mean, I'm generally pretty good with getting back to people, not always, but usually. And I am surprised at how often I call someone back and the first thing they say is, wow, thanks for getting back to me. Yep. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? And I'm thinking to myself, well, why wouldn't I? It just, I mean, it doesn't even occur to me that I wouldn't, unless I've been busy and I, and I really have just, I should have hired someone to go through my voicemail. Sure. But evidently, a lot of people are not following up with folks when they call in. No, they don't. Yeah, the operations issues, that's kind of like, for me, my always my secret weapon in working with the clients is just to to get into operations because it's the last people most people place most people look and communications is a, is a huge one and actually I, I don't find people at least where I'm from it's not the phone that's the problem it's email and they're not checking email or the contact form on their website is broken which is like the number one thing so all of you everyone listening hello I want you all to go right now to your website if it has a contact form on it please test it and make sure it's working nine times out of ten it is not. So these types of things, these are really simple little things. But, you know, there's another thing, and that is kind of the way that a patient moves through the practice. So if your forms are problematic or don't exist or you lose them, that's a huge issue. Or you consistently don't remember how much your services cost or you don't have a consistent menu of services or these types of things, these things in the patient flow from the beginning to the end, those are our operational issues. Or your sheets are dirty, or your space is dirty. All of these things, facilities and operations issues, they can stop patients from coming back. And word of mouth works both ways. So we, we have to attend to those systematic issues. Yeah, but they're not getting back to people. I can't. I can't understand that. Evidently, it's an issue. So all y'all out there listening right now, give it a look. Yeah. Are you actually following up with very hot leads that you've got? And thank you for that suggestion to check my email <laughs> on my website. I, yeah, it's a thing. I hadn't thought of that. A lot of the forms, especially on Word, like the plugin based, that code sometimes will come into conflict with the main code for the website. And so they really quickly, it's astonishing. I check mine every single month at the end of the month. And I would say three times out of 12 months, something is wrong with it. Okay, that's terrifying. There's my tip, y'all. Okay. Oh my God. I'm going to go check mine as soon as we're done. <laughs> I'm sure. And I'm a computer guy. I hadn't even thought to do that. That's telling. You know, another thing that I've heard, I've heard other people say this too, in terms of your facilities, how does it feel? Is it clean? It's helpful to walk into your clinic and just pretend that you're a patient. Like walk in, sit down in one of your waiting room chairs. What are you seeing? It can be very, very instructive. How obvious what they're meant to do, right? Patients, when they come to us for the first time, especially because what we do is still fringy, they're often quite nervous. You're nervous anyway when you see a new practitioner or whatever. But if they've never been to an acupuncturist before, they're in heightened state. And so making sure that they're not having to make a lot of decisions, you know, and that if they need to use a bathroom, it's not a super awkward thing. And it's just stuff like that, like those simple little operational and facilities issues, it's astonishing. You can cha change a patient's experience by just attending to these minor issues. And even if you're just still learning how to treat patients, you don't have a 100% success rate or whatever. It's like if people feel that your space is safe and that you're trustworthy and that they can rely on you, that's gold because every patient that walks in that door, right, is the most important patient. And your existing patients are your most important source of, of everything good in your business. So taking very good care of them, making sure they're not having to make a ton of decisions, making sure that you're caring for them from the moment they walk in the door until the moment they leave. Like those things, I think, are really under-discussed in business teaching for us. As we're having this conversation... I realized that I need a little sign on a wall. I know exactly where it's going to go. It's going to say restroom. It's going to have an arrow that points in a certain direction. It's great. That'll do Perfect. it. I won't have to say anything. They could just walk in. Yeah. And just that little thing. You don't think it's a big deal, but. Yeah. They know where it is. Wow. That's super simple. And yet, again, I like how you say it makes the space safe for the patient. If your space is safe, well, okay, already the treatment is going to be more helpful because their nervous system is calming down. 
Yeah. I mean, it's huge. One of the things that I've always believed is that if I'm really going to do this work and if I'm going to be successful, I want every part of my practice to be resonant with the principles of the medicine. And for me, I was taught in terms of my clinical education, that first moment when you walk into the treatment room, from that moment, the first time you touch their wrist, all these little moments, each one is an opportunity to build trust with that patient. And for some people, literally that's it, right? Like we all know, anybody who's been in practice for a while knows that sometimes you have these patients that they've been very wounded by the medical system often and having somebody listen to them and having somebody to be trustworthy and to hold space for them is the key that unlocks their physiology, right? So this isn't just about making money, although that's nice, but it's really about building a container for the transformation of your patients. That's what your business is. That's what it should be. And if you approach it that way, then your patients will be rewarded with health and you'll be rewarded with some cash, which is nice. Again. Yeah. Well, if you want to be in business, then you got to make sure you stay in business. I don't know anyone who's got a business who says capitalism is a bad idea. <laughs> I don't because it's what allows us to have an exchange, to be able to create and share value. Yeah, especially within the system we're in. I mean, I think we could have a whole other uh, conversation about that topic, which is a whole separate topic. But here's my thing. Whatever you feel about where capitalism is right now, it's the system we're in. And you have, a, you have a choice. You can opt out. And I don't know what, what you'll be up to, but you can do another thing. You know, there's, there are people proposing alternatives like the gift economy method or approach, or I'm not sure what they call that. There's other ways and there's other articulations of economic systems. But I live in the United States of America and I live in, in the place that I'm in now. And, and this is my option. Otherwise I can get a job. You know, I mean, there's not, there are increasing jobs, I will say. Mm -hmm. So there are more and more opportunities for folks who don't want to get their hands dirty with the money, but money's always exchanged somewhere. So it's such an interesting thing about get our hands dirty with the money. Yeah, I know. Maybe we can go into this for just a moment because I've looked a little into gift economy as well. And it sounds like a great idea. And on a small scale, I think it makes a lot of sense, but I don't know how it scales to a nation. Yeah, it's tough to see. And that's the biggest thing, right? Is for me, like, I have my political commitments, and I have my philosophical orientation economically. But the truth of the matter is that we are in the system that we're in. And for me, when you know, because I do work with some clients, coaching clients who are very, this is their big issue, right? This is the thing that is preventing them from having success is that they feel deeply ambivalent about being involved in that system. So I have a lot of experience in talking to folks about this. And for me, what it always gets down to is I have a responsibility to my lineage. I really believe that when I graduated and when we went through our lineage ceremony, for me, that was it. Like it was like a, a marriage, you know, again, in that way, in terms of a deep commitment. And so I have a responsibility to make sure that this lineage persists and that it gets out to the people that need it. I have a commitment as a, a medical practitioner to help people. And if I lived in the in feudal China, I would need to find a way to support myself, right? I would need to use that system in order to stay alive so that I could deliver my lineage, be a container for my lineage to come out to patients. And it's no different now. Right. And it's just that this is the system that we have. So I'm going to use it the best way that I can, the most ethical way I can, so that my lineage will keep going on into the generations and that so people can benefit from it. But I do think I will say that I think these conversations are really worthwhile. Right. It's really worthwhile for us to step back and look at these systems and say, what's going on here? Does this serve us? But like you say, like you making that change doesn't change society. Right. It, what it does is changes your own experience. And so we have to ask ourselves about those things. It's about scalability and about viability over the long term. So yeah, it's tough though. It can be a real tough stumbling block for some folks. I've had some conversations on the podcast uh, with other practitioners talking about business and talking about ethics. And I've had more than a few people suggest that if you are running your business in such a way that you're losing money, then you're being unethical. Because your job is to stay in business to help people. Your job is to be able to find a way in the space and time and culture you're in, as you were just saying, to be able to deliver the services that you deliver. And so to work in a way where you're not embracing 
whatever tools are available for you to do that, it's doing a deep disservice to the medicine, to yourself, and ultimately to your patients. Because if you can't be around to share the medicine, then, I mean, it's game over. Yeah. Or if you have to get a job delivering pizzas in the evening because you can't make ends meet, right? There's no shame in that. There's no shame if you have to have another job or something like that. But it would certainly be ideal if you could devote all of your energy to the medicine and to your patients, right? You know, not having to do something that maybe would be more energetically draining or not quite what you are oriented around. And also, again, like the thing I always try to get practitioners to reflect on is that the boom and bust cycle of practice is really difficult on patients, right? So for some patients out here where I'm at, if I were to go out of business, I'm not saying like I'm, you know, God's gift or whatever, but like we hold a very special place in this community. And if we were to go out of business, it would be really tough on a lot of people and could really set them back in a basic way, you know? And so it's like, for me, yeah, it's like, I will do what it takes to keep this practice thriving and, and getting out there because I do want it to be successful. And again, not everybody's cut out for business, right? So if, if your ambivalence is that deep, or if you just, you know, don't feel like you have the head for it, there are increasing opportunities. Like I'm hiring. So if anybody wants to come out to Astoria, <laughs> there's increasing opportunities, which is awesome. I think that's great because business isn't for everyone. I agree. And I think it's wonderful that there are more opportunities that if people just want to have a job and practice and, and no shame in that, that those are available. However, I think we still need to remember that whoever your boss is, they are attending to all these things that we've been talking about this past hour. And so even if you don't have your hands in it, you better hope that your boss has their hands and their heart in it. Because otherwise, you don't have a job. Absolutely. And in fact, having a basic awareness of what it takes to run a practice and knowing the kind of sense of good and bad practices will help you to make sure that you're in a practice that aligns with your values and that is going to stay open long-term, right? So yeah. if you see things happening in the practice that are either like shenanigans or are just not very good business practices, then you might start looking for another job. So it's always a good thing to, just like I tell people, just because you have somebody doing your taxes doesn't mean you shouldn't know anything about tax law, right? That's how we get into trouble big trouble sometimes. So attending to that's still important, even if you think you're just going to have a, you know, just a job, maybe you don't need to learn as much or get too detailed about it or make a business plan. But having a sense of like, yeah, this is kind of what marketing looks like in a practice. And this is kind of what records management look like. And, and having a sense of what it costs and what it really takes to run a practice. It's not easy. Well, this has been fun. I can't believe an hour has gone by already. Yeah, that was fast. Because Man, we could jawbone on this for a while. Eric, anything else that you'd like to share with folks before we wind it down for today? No, I'm delighted. We got into all the kinds of things I was thinking to thinking to talk about. I guess this one thing I might leave folks with, we got a little serious. I'm feeling a little serious today. I'm sorry. But I really think that for me, when I teach and when I write about this kind of stuff, it really can be fun and a delight. Learning how to do this and mastering some of these skills can really, even though it is overwhelming at first and it has challenges. Like I'm so happy right now. Like my life is so exactly what I would want and I'm busy all the time and you know I'm running practice and writing courses and doing all this stuff, but I'm deeply satisfied and I'm deeply satisfied in part because this work and doing business like this allows us to bring so much of ourselves to the fore and and for me that's what life's all about. So I don't want people to get the sense that it's all, you know, all difficulty and prenuptial agreements like there's real joy, like it's real joy. And when I teach, I really try to make it as fun as possible because it should be, because it's a good, it's a good time. I think there is tremendous freedom in running our own businesses, but that freedom is rooted and grounded in responsibility. All right, man. Well, this has been wonderful, and I look forward to uh, the next time we get together. Can't wait. After listening to today's conversation, I'm wondering if you are thinking a little differently about your business, especially if you thought that running a business was somehow disconnected from having an acupuncture practice or that the running of a business was somehow not connected to the practice of working with patients. 
Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm-hmm.